This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, I can't wait for this. Emad is an old friend of mine, and as you know from his previous interview, has gone from an uh, incarnation out of being a hedge fund manager to helping the world solve the pandemic crisis, to now becoming at the absolute epicenter of the AI revolution. He's incredibly smart, lovely guy, and I think we're going to get some insights to how fucked we really are, but also how augmented we get along that journey and everything in between. If you've been following, this AI revolution is beyond anything humanity's ever experienced in terms of technology. And the point being, it's only just bloody started. I mean, it's literally months old in terms of the formats that we're seeing with ChatGPT and maybe nine months old in the visual elements of stability, um, diffusion, and some of these other models, DALI, stuff like that. So let's dig in and see where we get to. Join me, Raoul Pal, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto, and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. So the last time we came on Real Vision, that was hilarious because it was exactly at the right moment, but when nobody, everyone's seen Dally, people have seen, seen what you were doing, and then your interview kind of framed it for a lot of people. And it was like, oh my God, this is happening. Then ChatGPT comes out. You're the busiest man in the world. You're in every single newspaper, every magazine, interviewed everywhere, and you're at the epicenter of something massive. So firstly, congratulations. Well done. Let's catch up. Let's find out what the hell is going on now, because it's moving so fast. I read your tweets with interest. I mean, I can't even keep up with this stuff. It's a bit insane. I think I mentioned last time we created a time machine, not a knowledge compression machine, but it's a bit of a... Well, you know, like three years ago, in February, uh, we did the one of these where I think it was a startup February. We were talking about COVID, right? That's right. And uh, I think uh, we saved a lot of uh, Real Vision people money and made people money that way, talking about what's coming. And this is far bigger than the pandemic. It's far, far bigger. And we're seeing it live in front of our eyes right now. I think one of those things one is... Of the things, uh, just to, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but one of the things I've been framing it as for people to understand at a macroeconomic level is this is a bigger shock than China entering the WTO Yeah, on so many levels. It's gigantic. It's huge. I mean, I think fundamentally, people are hard to scale. Expertise is hard to scale. This technology makes it so you can scale people. Like one of the most difficult things has been, you know, always finding a good intern, finding a good analyst. ChatGPT is a good analyst or intern with a bad memory, right? And that can displace so many things because now you have knowledge work being scalable, you know? And so the best knowledge work has become more scalable with this technology because we don't get stuck with that blank page problem, you know? And we can take ourselves and put them into these models to then learn about us and then it extends us. Um, but so much of our world is information-based and it organizes information better. Perfectly, no. But better, yes. 
So again, it solves that expertise scalability question. They're still with a human. Um, and as you said, this is a bigger thing than trying to enter the WTO because what that did, that scaled manufacturing. This scales ideas. It scales information flow. And I think uh, we're just seeing the early stages of that, even though it's being deployed, again, at insane scale. There's always this thing like technology always starts as a toy. I'm like the toy to deploy cycle has become like that. Microsoft has shown the way and then everyone's following. Just like, you know, Twitter somehow is still going despite 75% of the people not being there. Uh, you know, Airbnb kind of did that. So people started laying off. I'm like, how many people do these big tech companies need? Well, a lot less now that this technology is here. Um, it's kind of, if Microsoft can do it, I can do it. And boom, it's in Slack. Boom, it's in Notion. You know, where is it not going to be? So after you really came onto the stage, then suddenly we hit the accelerator button everywhere. Microsoft ramps up with OpenAI. Google hits the panic button. Amazon, I presume, are hitting the panic button. Where are we now in all of this? Because, you know, I'm watching you kind of wryly observing all of this on Twitter as everybody is now hitting walk factor 10. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody, everything everywhere all at once is kind of the way it is. Um, and again, it's very reminiscent of the pandemic, right? Like it's the February of 2020, where every single person in the world that has a knowledge interacting company needs to have a generative AI strategy. But it's not like a metaverse strategy or Web3 strategy. It's being demanded now because you can be outcompeted. You know? Like, has Bing had much uptick? No, because Bing is still crap. But it's definitely hit 100 million extra users, right? It's going to get better. This is the thing. And so you're parallelizing this equation all at the same time with everyone asking the same questions. And they're going to put more and more resources because they've realized this could be existential. You know? Um, 41% of all code on GitHub now is AI generated. Really? Already? Yeah, already. Just six, seven months after Copilot came out. There was a study shown that coders that use Copilot are 58% more effective than coders who don't. Because it takes away a lot of the drudgery work. You can have the framework to start to kick you off. ChatGPT has passed the Google Level 3 programmer test, and it's not a specialized model. $478 billion coding industry, what does that look like in a few years? You know, these are the levels that people think, wait a second, this is better than I am, you know? And that's always kind of a question. Um, so this is why emergency teams are kind of being put together. I think the number of instances of AI in analyst uh, earnings calls and announcements, Bloomberg do a chart, are up something like 50 to 70% on the last quarter. This next quarter, every single one, every analyst is going to ask the same it question. Therefore mean that everybody just does this? So it's just a kind of ramping up in productivity for everybody all at one point. There's no competitive advantage per se, unless this you is, don't have it. This is the really interesting thing. On an individual basis, everyone suddenly got access all at the same time through OpenAI, but now through new technologies like our version and Anthropic's version, Google's version that will come in a few months, you know. But there's no organizational advantage yet because it's a very personalized experience right now or individual because you've kind of got it and then they're just integrating it now. How organizations implement this at scale with shared knowledge will be the most interesting thing because there'll be some organizations whereby 
if you're a software as a service company, having the ability to have intelligent code and intelligent knowledge, does somebody need you anymore? Your competitor can outcompete you by having cost savings internally and then driving you down on pricing pressure. But for a regulated industry like education and healthcare, that's different, right? So like Google on January the 8th released a paper called MedPalm. So Google have a language model that's three times bigger than OpenAI's model, GPT-3, called Palm. When they asked it medical questions, it gets a 50% accuracy, despite being a general question. The record previously was 74% accuracy. When they trained it on how humans answered questions, and this is a 200 gigabyte file, and that's it, no connection to the internet, and it's generalized, it got to 78% accuracy. When they trained it on question-answer pairs for clinical diagnostics, it got to 92.8% versus a human expert at 92.9% just from a single file. Again, think about the implications of that for healthcare. United Health and people like that can save billions and billions and billions, but they maintain pricing power, whereas other areas become hyper-competitive. And your other thesis is we can also globalize this. So therefore, countries that don't have the level of expertise suddenly have the level of expertise at their hands. Yes, and think about it for education. Education is never the same again. You know, if I told you that, so we know we've been doing adaptive learning with imagineworldwide.org for now years and years, and we've shown it works. 76% of kids in refugee camps get literate and numerate in 13 months on one hour a day, compared to nine out of 10 kids in Africa not being able to read and write a sentence by the age of 10. That's insane, just with basics, right? But now, when I was having my one-week break over Christmas, because uh, I gave the whole team a week off, I said, get some sleep or you're going to die in 2023, because it's going to be so hectic. And of course, this inside around that, as stability, I see, and says, you're going to die in 2023. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, I got calls from like five headmasters saying, Emad, what's my generative AI strategy? I was like, what? All our kids are using ChatGPT to do their essays for homework now. And this is one of the top private schools. So every single headmaster all around the world at the same time had the same question. So what happens now? In Eton, you do your essays live in class, old blue book kind of thing. You handwrite it. Education is never the same. And so this is one of the interesting things, you know, when we always look at markets. Sometimes things are never the same, and there's a lot of never the same's coming as a result of this. And how will people adapt? Because you can scale humans again. You can scale expertise. So the global south suddenly can scale individualized one-to-one tuition. The Bloom method is the only thing significant, like one-to-one tuition to do that. You know, you can scale healthcare. You can scale all these things, but that means expertise becomes global. So again, China bought manufacturing, global with a WTO kind of thing. This reduces the cost of expertise going global which is obviously a far bigger impact. I mean, how do expertise-based companies, you know, if you think about the McKinsey's of this world and all, I mean, it's so disruptive to everybody. I think this is why Bain announced their partnership with OpenAI with Coca-Cola being the first major customer, which is interesting. Uh, you know, do you want to sell sugar some water with AI? I don't know. I'm going to have to come up with some slogan around that or come work with us. Um, the... They have to move. They have to adapt. We, I was talking to one of the big four accounting firms. They're putting hundreds of millions into this before the end of the year because they're like, this could end tax and audit. 
And I was like, you're a big four accounting firm. And they're like, we know, but we tried this. And I can do my report super quickly. So why can't I do a tax report super quickly? I was like, okay. But they're going to put billions in, right? So again, information flow gets disrupted by these tiny little files. How I'm thinking about this, we'll, we'll dig into the specifics of where you are and what you're doing, but I just want to frame some of this bigger stuff. How I'm thinking about this is this is a incredible acceleration moment for productivity. But it does create a change in the job structure. What that is, how it works, don't know yet. How are you thinking about going out five years from here? I can't even think about one year, let alone five years. <laughs> like I thought the chat GPT moment, I think I said to you, would happen at the end of this year, not the start of this year, right? I mean, it's been 14 weeks since ChatGPT, and I'm recording this five weeks since that year dropped a bomb and made Google dance, right? And the whole market, again, what's the number one question is this now. So you're parallelizing capital deployment into this infrastructure, and you have adoption like you've never seen before. A hundred million users in a month or a month and a half. We've never seen anything like that. Yeah. Well, I know it was, yeah, a million in five days, a hundred million in a month and a half, but this is easy. It's usable and you don't have to wait to try it. It's instantly accretive because it solves the blank page problem. But then this is just the first use of it. And it gets integrated into flows. Like um, Meta had a paper called Cicero. Cicero, they took eight language models working together and it outcompetes humans at the game of diplomacy. Right? which everyone thought was impossible. So as this gets more and more advanced and used in different ways, again, you're, just at, you're at the iPhone 3G moment, if anything. When we talked last, we were at the iPhone original. You remember, I didn't have copy and paste. We just got copy and paste. Where's the app store? The app store is coming, right? Uh, and it's coming now because everyone wants to build the apps, and it's easy to build the apps. Four of the top 10 apps on the app store in December were based on stable diffusion, and that was the entire back end a two gigabyte file. We got neural engine access on the 1st of December, the first AI ever, because these files, again, are entire backends that you can just build on in seconds, minutes. You can even get it to write the code for you. Um, so again, like I don't know where we're in five years, honestly. I just know that, you know, again, this feels like the start of a pandemic where there's new productivity booms on the other side. And I just see it as massively deflationary. I can't see how it's not. I can't see how it's not. I, I don't think people get it. It's incredibly deflationary. The biggest drivers, the only drivers of inflation have been regulated industry. Healthcare, education, you know, some things like that. This completely disrupts those. Like it'll take time, but again, like the profit margins for those guys and any regulated industry with pricing power go insane as they adopt this, right? The ones where it's competitive, you have massive pricing pressure that comes. And then obviously you've got the hardware guys, so there'll be rotation into that side of things. So, but it's going to happen slowly and then all at once. And we've seen this so many times, right? But we've never seen anything this fast. Because if we talked six weeks ago, we'd be having a very different conversation to three weeks ago to today. I know. And that's, I think everybody's struggling. And I've been talking about this for a while, that these moments are coming. And it's not just in this, we'll see it in robotics, we'll see it in... Instead yes. of things, we'll see we'll so many things where we'll see this moment happening all at the same point. The humanity struggles to catch up with what the hell it is. Yeah, and I think everyone's trying to get that answer right. But this is unique because we have the infrastructure for rapid deployment at scale. 
it was in the latest version of Windows, you know, just like Stable Diffusion. There was a Mac OS update for Stable Diffusion. And it was like, literally, we now have Neural Engine access. You, that's Apple moving that fast. You know, that's Microsoft moving that fast. Google is now a generative AI first company, trillion dollar companies. Robotics, IoT, other things need to have the deployment cycle, whereas software deploys instantly at scale. And we're talking hundreds of millions of users already, right? Like if we were having this conversation on Teams, Teams now automatically su transcribes, summarizes, and adapts your conversations. And the next page is automatically do PowerPoint presentations off that if you want. You know, that's here this year. How is everybody going to re-educate themselves on all of these new tools? Because there, there are literally thousands. I mean, every day there's a new tweet thread with, here's the 20 great AI tools you've never heard of. You're like, holy shit. There's always this question of incumbents versus entrants, right? So the previous AI generation, you saw actually incumbents benefit from computer vision advances, benefit from all these other things. I think that's what you're seeing today as well, because you need distribution. Like, there isn't time to build your own distribution from here. Like again, ChatGPT was very immediate, but now where are we seeing it? We're seeing it in Salesforce. We're seeing it in Slack. We're seeing it in Notion. You know, we're seeing it in freaking Instacart. Like it's good enough, fast enough, and cheap enough that existing companies can adopt it. And the only question is, can you afford not to adopt it? The actual use is, I think, relatively limited right now because again, it's like a smart intern. But when's it going to get to analyst, associate, VP level? Pretty quickly. Just like that MedPalm example that we gave, because you have the generalized model, the model that learns how humans interact with it, specialized domain, and then human in the loop, rapid iteration. We haven't got to that point yet, where it learns about Raoul or Emad. And this is the thing, you don't need to learn how to use it. It's natural because it's based on the sum of principled analysis of the entire text corpus or the entire image corpus or the entire sound corpus. So we're going to have, like, it just seamlessly fits into existing architectures from chat to other things. And in fact, in the future, literally in the next few years, it will automatically build UIs for you. We already see that. Like, are you a visual outputter versus an auditory outputter versus this or that? Why do you need to have menus anymore? Just tell the damn machine what you want. Language is code. And this thing can code. And isn't the game going to be about data sets in the end? Yeah, I think there's a lot of value to data sets. Um, and, you know, we've been going and making some very fun deals. But at the same time, these are few-shot learners. That's the way it's called. So you have this generalized corpus of the whole internet, right? Or a snapshot of the internet. And so it learns the principles from all of that. But then you teach it a little bit, and then it hones in on that specific area of the internet. But it doesn't need to have big data for that. You can do that no, with very little. Of the quality of the data sets that you therefore train it on. So if you've got proprietary data sets, the better the proprietary data set to add into the model, the better it's going to be. Yeah. So, you know, that's what our model is. Our thing is you create the standard in every model of every modality, and then people can take our base models, these generative engines, and then add their own data to it and have sovereignty over that. So Goldman Sachs, City, everyone, they are banning chat GPT, but they can create their own stable chat as it were, by adapting to that data. But the models, like I said, are very quick learners. So an example of that is the number one app in the App Store in December was Lenza. You know, this thing where you upload your face, like 10 pictures, and boom, you've got a model that just does your faces. 
That's just from 10 pictures, right? So this is what I said, few shot learning. So if you look as well, what's happening now, like there's a bunch of use cases that are based on private data and all this institutional knowledge. Like you can pull into Google Slides soon, like all your internal real vision notes and everything, and then have OpenAI's API to combine with that and boom, generate slides based on private and public knowledge. First time it's ever possible. In fact, it extends Google mission, organize the world's knowledge and make it accessible. You can finally go behind the firewall without our technology in a completely legal and proper way as people have their models and then these general models. But then what's also happening is you can give these things more and more instructions. So until recently, you can only use 4,000 characters for the prompts. Now you can use 32,000. So you can give it a whole instruction set of like a HR policy. And then it learns that HR policy dynamically without having to retrain the model. So there is generalized world knowledge, the specific rule-based knowledge, and then there's masses of really unique knowledge. And there's variants for each of these. And they're all accessible pretty much now. But again, like we can only put tens of millions or maybe a hundred million into training this infrastructure. Now there's a revenue component and there's a strategic imperative. How much do you really think is going to go into this sector in the next few years, Well, A trillions at this rate. Literally trillions. 5G was trillions. This is more important than 5G. So I don't even know where I'm going to end up. Like, again, uh, I'm trying no, to... No, and I don't think because it. we yeah. don't think very well in, exponential, in exponentials, and this is one of the biggest... Well, it is the biggest exponential we've ever seen in technology. It's the extension of human expertise. It's made expertise scalable, like I said. And so that is huge. Um, and like I said, this is infrastructure. Every company uses this infrastructure. Every country will need their own versions. And so that's kind of where we position, I position stability, right? I think we discussed this, to be the infrastructure layer for private data. Yeah, I want to come into this whole comparison thing. I just want to understand one thing before we move on, how you fit into all of this, is the one thing... That that is expensive in this equation is the training of the models and having to use AWS or Azure or everybody else. Not really. You know, we're training um, cutting edge language models that are GPT-3 level. It's like a couple of million bucks. And then that model can be used everywhere. I mean, even if it costs a hundred million now, like GPT-4, does it matter? No. Well, I'm thinking more of the applications layer, not at the foundational layer like you guys are. So, yeah, once the, once the model is trained, then it becomes about inference or running the model. So stable diffusion from launch to now, we reduce the cost by 100 times. ChatGPT just has a 10 times cost reduction as well. Actually, the way to think about it is this way. You remember Bitcoin? You started mining it on GPUs. Do we use GPUs anymore? No, we use ASICs. So what happens when everyone uses the same model? You can have ASICs. And so... I mean, a lot of value does accrue to those giant companies because of all of their, their compute power, right, that everybody has to lease. I don't think so, because I think people are thinking that loads of models will be trained. My take is that 95% of the compute will be ASICs or GPUs for running the models. Maybe 5% will be creating your own custom versions of it, and 1% will be building the foundation layer. Because how can you survive when you're competing against OpenAI slash Microsoft and DeepMind slash Google? We're going to go all in on building proprietary models and have the language feedback loops. It's incredibly difficult, right? 
And it becomes, again, as you said, bigger and bigger to train the big models. Unless you've got a slightly different strategy like us, there's no competing. How many SpaceXs are there going to be building infrastructure to go to Mars? Maybe at most two or three, right? How many people are going to be building the space foundation layer model? Maximum two or three, you know? And then you see the market dynamics. What do we see with this type of thing? One entity to the takes like 80% of the market, right? Because they become the standard. But you also want to avoid single vendor lock-in for your most important kind of thing. So I think that um, the value does accrue, but then, you know, there are questions like NVIDIA. NVIDIA stocks on a freaking tear. You know, and we love NVIDIA because we've got thousands and thousands of GPUs. Uh, we're melting a lot of them because we're optimizing the hell out of these things. Um, but again, what happens when you have the move from general purpose to ASICs? Do you maintain a 70, 80% margin on that side? And that's a question mark. You know, what happens when there's competitive pressure? So you've got Gaudi 2 from Intel, you've got Tranium 2 from Amazon, you have TPU V5s. And they're trying to undercut your pricing. It's coming now. So it's not quite so straightforward, I think, in terms of value accrual. And sometimes we don't really know. Like, uh, ITA software sold for 700 million. Kayak sold for 2 billion, building on top of ITA software, right? So I think there'll be some value at the foundation layer and these big corporates, but most of the value will be created above that by people that use this correctly, saving money internally or driving better revenue outcomes externally in media and regulated industries, other places. Right? I think semis will be rotated into very aggressively because it's a no-brainer play for a simple story. You know, but then other areas, you look across the SaaS thing, you look at all the HR SaaS companies, and you're like, I could build your whole stack on a file. You know, it'd probably be just as good. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. The landscape is obviously these mega giants. How do you guys fit into that? So where does it, where, how does the landscape fit together right now as you see it? So if you're an investment bank, you ban chat GPT, but you're on your internal version. Are you going to hire a bunch of Stanford PhDs and train your own model from scratch and take a lot of that risk? Or are you going to use our language models that we're releasing? The ones we've already released have been downloaded 25 million times. Why know? are they banning chat GPT? Because what happens when you upload and type into chat GPT sensitive banking data? You know, can you write a this about the activist takeover of Amazon, as an example, right? You can't do that, can you? Hmm. So you need your own model. And are you going to train your own model from scratch, or are you going to use our off-the-shelf model? You're going to use that one, right? Uh, because since we released Stable Diffusion, we released it open source, only two companies that we know of created their own version from scratch, because training the model is very hard. So we're training the base models, in generalized forms, we have sector-specific versions of that with commercially licensed data, and we have country versions of that for individual cultures. And then we distribute that through our hyperscaler partners like Amazon and others. Like Snowflake made 900 million via the Amazon sales channel last year. And our value is in standardizing and making that predictable and stable, shall we say, uh, across all these modalities. So for the base layer users, we get our revenue shares, You know, we get our customized things on the back of that as well. And, uh, you know, we can be open AI for everyone else because there's no other company that can guarantee that you can build a model. So we have all the top companies in the world coming to us and saying, can you create custom models for us? And we're like, yeah, how much? 
how expensive is that? It's very expensive compared to seven weeks ago. Um, so it's a mixture of the standardization and this customization. That's where we fit in for all the private data in the world. If it's public data or if it's generalized stuff, you can use the APIs and you can send your data to Google and Microsoft. There are also going to be private instances of ChatGPT and others where they guarantee not to look at it. And that's, again, a great halfway house. And so the landscape is these private instances, these generalized APIs, and then the private side, the standardization layer is us. So what you talked about the, the kind of specialist models. Where, where are you now with all of the suite of products that you've got? Because you've got a lot and more coming. Yeah, so we've released the image models and we have the next generation of that coming out. They're cutting edge, full controllability now. So we figured out fingers, we figured out text. We have video models training on 11,000 videos. Uh, yeah, when is this actually. video shit coming? Because that's, that's, I think, another big shock that people don't realize what is about to happen. I think the first release is in a month or two from us. Um, you know, we've got an amazing team. And this is you text do, to video? Text to video, yeah. You type it in and generate videos. Like you can already kind of just act a video and do style transfer on it, like the Corridor Digital videos. And that'll be heading towards real time where you can turn what we're doing right now into full animation, almost real time. Um, like, you know, but then you want to be able to create anything just by describing it, which is coming. Uh, you know, we've got script writing technology as well. So it'll write scripts in the style of some famous directors we're about to announce to help the directors. Um, the whole of media is going to change as a result of this. Yeah, we're spinning at Real Vision to try and just figure out where the hell to, where, where to play your cards because, you know, unless you're a big company, you've got budgets and you need to figure out what the hell to do. Well, I mean, this is the thing. Like, you can auto-generate a podcast based on the intents of the person on the other side, right? With a human realistic voice. And then even Raul, <laughs> you auto-generate entire interviews back and forth between people. Yeah, because there's enough content of me online that... You can train a model. Yes. And so you can have a customized Raoul every morning for every single one of your listeners. I think within a year, definitely too. Oh, my God. How do I keep up? I mean, it's just really hard um, <laughs> because you don't want to get, you don't want to get disrupted because somebody's going to do it. That's the, the terror in all of this is there's some 24-year-old going, well, fuck it. I'm starting from scratch and I'm going to... Yeah. Like, there is an infinite Seinfeld channel now. Um, some of the jokes are quite funny. You know, there's this thing where they've got the dynamic defects. Again, there are certain things you have to always think, where is my edge in this new world? Because what happens, it, this is a regime change, right? It's a regime change in the way that information flows around the world. And it's going to restructure the value landscape, and then people find their own areas. Like, where is our value? Our value is being the standard for open models, but what do we mean by open? We mean transparent, free-range, organic. You know how they've been fed. You know what's inside it. And there's a whole ecosystem and support around it, right? So transforming the world's private data is our thing. And that's where I'm occupied. Because I think that's a $100 billion, trillion company. You know, that's something I want to IPO ASAP. Other people are finding their edge elsewhere, you know? So like I said, in regulated industries, if you adopt this technology and you can scale the human component, boom, your costs go down dramatically. In media, if you use this, then you can leverage your existing IP and boom, away it kind of goes. You know, you can surface stuff. You've got intelligent interns and analysts and associates and VPs coming. Um, you don't want to be computed away. At the same time, stuff is slow. Like people still use Lotus Notes, right? 1.5 million people are still on AOL. 
Like everyone said that Meta was gonna disrupt like Google search, it never really happened. Hopefully they'll turn back to being Facebook soon. Uh, yeah, maybe they'll change <laughs> their ticket to AI. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so we've got text-to-video, we've got script writing, we've got the next version of your... of um, Language um, stable, models. The stable yeah, diffusion. diffusion. Yeah. So we've got that's the, the kind of gorgeous ability text-to-image. Then you've got language models. Talk us through the your version of ChatGPT and how you play in that sphere, because that's interesting. Yeah, so, you know, our existing language models from our Aluthor AI community um, generated 25 million times, so they're basically the standard in language models already. We don't really communicate that much. In fact, we just spun out Aluthor into an independent charity, or 501c3, to do interpretability, evaluation, and alignment, because we think it's important to have an independent entity rather than us going doing it by ourselves, and we're bringing more and more parties uh, to that. So the language model is the first bit. That's the bit that's trained on the corpus of the internet. And we have our new data set, the Power version 2, being released in like a week, right? And how, so, how recent is that versus ChatGPT, which is 2021? Well, it's like a few months ago. Right. But again, these models now we're teaching to be auto-updating and things like that. Because the other part is we have a code model coming. So uh, we released the first version of that last month, 6 billion parameters. And so when you combine a language model with a code model, you can do dynamic SQL database lookups to fetch recent data. So you.com, Neva, and even Bing do that to make sure they're up to date. So you have this generalized knowledge and then a lookup of recent facts to compare against it. You don't have to have one model to do everything, although eventually you might be able to. So the base thing is first the language model. So our language models are very good, touch wood, like <laughs> uh, mounting lots of GPUs. Um, but then the next stage of that after that is you instruct it to human preferences. So that's reinforcement learning with human feedback. Because you have this generalized thing. It's like putting someone in front of a TV and taping their eyes open and they just watch it. They learn about everything, you know? But sometimes the answers are a bit crazy. So you teach it what type of questions and answers via a reward function. Humans usually like, that's the RLHF bit. That takes a few months, right? And then you take sector and domain specific questions and instructions and you add that. And then you see how people use it in real life and you iterate and you adjust the outputs that way. So, you know, that'll take like, I don't know, six months or something like that, the whole process. But the language models are the first bit, and then you move forward to that. Um, and so, so it's going to be like a stability chat. Is that how yeah. you think of it? Yeah, we've got stable LM first, which is the language models, and then we've got stable chat. And then we've got stable code. And so people will use stable code for their internal code repositories, stable chat for their internal things. And then they'll pull in Google and Microsoft slash OpenAI APIs to create amazing hybrid AI experiences, right? So you can use both. So you can have your private data, private model on stability, but you can still use the generalized Google one or whatever you want to do. Yeah. Like you could have Google Slides, like I said, and it pulls in your private knowledge and then it pulls in this really amazing script writer from OpenAI. And boom, you have auto-generated slides that are beautifully cogent. Or you have it in Office, etc. I think that's the future. You have private models and you've got public models, right? Just like you had on-prem and cloud. Um, so that's why we're building models for every single type of media, because every single type of media will need their own models. And then you bring them together. What do you get? Whole worlds created dynamically, movies created dynamically, you know? And this isn't, isn't this just the, the metaverse moments as well? Because everything just goes into that now, because you digitize everything you can create 
Raoul can exist in five different places at the same time, talking to different people in my own voice and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is the breakthrough technology that Facebook should have focused on, or Meta. They did not. Um, but now they're lucky because they get this, you know? And so, you know, what we're doing by building open models that everyone can optimize for and standardize around will drive the acceleration of bringing that multimodality, those digital twins and other things for private data. Because otherwise, what happened is you'd have this Microsoft choke point on the internet, just like it had before, right? Now that at least there's another option and people can own their own models and own their own data and have localized versions of it, customized versions of it, rather than, you know, being beholden to that. So that's where I realized the gap was and that's where I've gone with stability. Um, and I think that's a better place to be as a business, I hope. Well, I know. Um, and also it's good for society because, again, we don't want this technology to be controlled by just a few. We want it to be widely available. So let's get philosophical. There are two outcomes. One is it accrues to some two or three superpower companies, albeit it's given to everybody. And a combination of the two is what's happening. So it becomes kind of ubiquitous. There's no stopping it, right? You, your, your choice of stability AI as an kind of open source means that it is now essentially viral. Yeah, I mean, like you just look at stable diffusion, most popular open source software ever. In three months, it overtook Bitcoin and Ethereum cumulatively on GitHub in terms of popularity. It took them 10 years. It's overtaking Linux as an ecosystem. Putting this out there, people will take it, extend it, and build around it. We've seen 16-year-olds to 60-year-olds kind of doing that. So our image models are by far the best. Our language models, once they get going, we believe in a year will be far the best. And they'll be accessible and usable. Um, because otherwise, you're going to have this digital divide, right? On steroids. You'll have super augmented humans who have access to ChatGPT and those who don't. Again, I think we mentioned last time, like, I'm usually very supportive of this industry, but I spoke out against OpenAI because they banned Ukrainians in Ukraine from DALI too, the image thing. And I'm like, how can you do that? Like, I think, I don't say unethical very often because I think ethics are complicated, but I was like, that's just wrong. You know, they recently changed that in the last few months, but there was a long time when no one in Ukraine could have superpowers for art, you know? And I understand there could be reasons around that, but you can't have a world where you have these restrictions. Like there was just a study released about ChatGPT. Guess what? ChatGPT's ideology is that of Silicon Valley. <laughs> okay, like you might agree that that should be the only ideology. My thing is that the world contains multitudes. And so we need to have every country will need their own national models to reflect their culture. And we need to distribute this widely as infrastructure. So again, this is why we have Imagine Worldwide. Bring this technology to the kids first and let them be the best of themselves, as it were. And when, in your mind, did these generalized models become smarter than humans? I mean, Mo Gorda, I don't know if you read his book, Scary Smart. So he was the guy who ran Google X, a really interesting guy. Uh, he's just like, end of this decade. Well, I mean, look, half of people have below average IQ, right? Around that. Obviously, by definition. <laughs> but 95% of people think they have above average IQ, right? Um, the, the barrier is not high for generality, unfortunately. Or uh, well, fortunately, I'm not sure. Um, so I have no idea. I just know that ChatGPT is a better coder than I am. 
in certain instances, right? It's a better pay, stable diffusion is a better painter than I am. You know, our music models are better musicians than I am. Like, I'm sure that Medpalm is a better doctor than I am. And do these all become just one big massive model in the end? I think do there's millions of models. Model. Yeah, I think you need millions of models because as you have a model that's specialized, it can be highly performant, right? Like these yeah, models you, are coming to the all of the specialized models together, you get generalized AI. You get generalized is. AI, yeah. So my take on the AGI today and all that thing is that swarm intelligence, augmenting humans, is the only real alternative to an AGI that overtakes everything. And I think this can be used to create swarm intelligence. On the way to that, you make people happier and you give people agency, which I think is a great way to do it. Because I don't like this idea of just building multi-trillion parameter model and billions of dollars, where people talk about alignment to these models with the emergent properties, right? So they're like, we can constrain the it. alignment discussion, because that's important as well. Yeah, so alignment is that as we build a model that's generally more capable than any human and can learn to be even more capable, we can align it so it's beneficial for humanity and doesn't wipe us all out. Because it's like, man, what's the easiest way to make humans not sad? Get rid of them all, right? Um, but for me, that's all orthogonal to freedom. So if you have someone more capable, we've all had people more capable than us, right? Can you constrain them? Yeah, if you restrict their freedom, and that's the only way you can do it, because they're by definition more capable than you. And that terrifies me. Um, so for me, one of the reasons I want to get the technology out there, I want to get it where it's useful in education, healthcare, creativity, is so that we can have dynamic form intelligence. And then that can coalesce to maybe counterbalance that, which is a crazy thing to say. But again, we're seeing it live. I'm having these conversations a lot now. Is like, it is not certain what that path is. It isn't. And so the, the common refrain that I get is two things. The only way to beat an AGI is to build another AGI that stops the bad AGI from happening. Like, that strikes me as being very bad, right? The other thing is, if we don't build AGI, the Chinese will build AGI. I'm like, of again, course. that seems like a bit silly. Uh, you know? So my thing is, like, again, get this technology out, create standards around it. So, like, one of the things we introduced was opt-out of our model data training sets. Nobody else has done that. Now, is it because they think it's the legal requirement? No. Moral requirement? Not really. Because, again, if it's public and open, you know, and you're using the scraping, I should be able to use it for that. But I think it's the right thing to do, you know? And so setting standards around that, pushing back against governments who actually want to be even more permissive about what we can do. I think we need to set standards like How that. How do you stop somebody, Israel, or somebody saying, well, we're not going to adopt any of your standards, therefore we can capture market share and we can do that? I, I don't know. I think all you have to do is just have to try and take a lead and make it the defaults. So again, the models that we are training, how many people have released stable diffusion models, even though they have the training code, and it's like only a million bucks to train? Again, compared to the value created, like Lenzo is making $2.5 million a day on the App Store. That's just one app, right, from this technology. But nobody trained them. So being in this open, transparent standard, like we have quite an important place in setting the standards of what is reasonable. You know, and then if people don't adopt that, as you said, maybe they out-compete. I don't think they do. There are elements around that, but it's hideously complicated, unfortunately. And especially at the pace, like there is no time to breathe, unfortunately. And it's really um, interesting listening to Sam Altman speak and seeing his tweets. I mean, he's fucking terrified. Like They said that the AGI alignment plan, and it was like, we're going to treat this as existential. 
even though some people disagree, I think that's incorrect because if it's existential, you wouldn't build it unless you're terrified of someone else building it. So there's a very unpleasant race well, dynamic. That is the case, right? There is game theory here. Yeah, it's kind of the known on that. I, I think, you know, it's an incredibly difficult thing. We don't know if it's 10 years, 20 years, one year. It's a known unknown, as it were, because, again, it's when do you have generalized intelligence? My take is stop trying to build generalized intelligence. You don't need it because you can have superhuman narrow intelligence already that makes us better, and we should focus on that. And, again, getting out there, the hive mind, how people use this and then take it and extend it, especially if you standardize the base, you know, people optimize around that. That's what you've seen with stable diffusion. That's what you're going to see with the language models. That can outcompete the deep minds and open AIs and others of the world, I think, in maybe getting there first in a small manner that is safer. But I don't know. I, you know and where are knows. regulators in this? I mean, they can't even regulate crypto. How the hell are they going to regulate this? I mean, look, on the Section 230 discussions at the Supreme Court, they're basically getting around to the internet right now, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, like, literally, that's in the comments. Like, uh, You have to help them, right? And so I think, again, regulation should be introduced, but you need to help the regulators because you can't introduce it in time. And again, the regulation is actually pro-competition now because every single country is looking and looking at the other ones like, holy crap, who's going to adopt this technology faster? It's a very unfortunate race condition. Um, so this is why I said, like, this is one of the biggest economic impacts of all time. I just think it's going to be bigger than the financial crisis, bigger than the pandemic. There's a lot of irreversibles. And some key questions will have to be made around this. This is also, you know, like, from my side, I'm like, I need to make stability a public company because we need to be accountable, given our place in this. Also, because there's going to be a supply-demand imbalance like no other, if I explain correctly. Because I was about to ask the question. There's basically yeah. no way to invest in this right now for the general public. Yeah, you can buy semiconductors and you can buy Microsoft and Google, but yeah. that's it. That's pretty much it. I and mean, even with Google, you've got the super normal margins that are definitely going to come down as a result of this, right? And they'll get punished for anything. You've got Photoshop and Adobe and things like that that will get a benefit, but then what happens if the competitor comes in? You've got NVIDIA, it's gone high, but what happens when people shift to ASICs that are 10 times cheaper, you know? So there's no easy place. I'm like, I'm going to make an easy play. Um, and then that will may hopefully allow me to, you know, distribute the governance and have a positive impact on this, even while making it so that we can remake Game of Thrones Season 8 because it was crap and things like that dynamically. <laughs> so again, there's this terrifying aspect to this, but there's this amazing aspect to this. Yeah, Educate every child. What if this AI kills us? You know, what if someone gets it before? So... It's this duality that I deal with kind of every day. Yeah, it's like nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Yeah, it's like, what if you put the nukes on the bottom of the rocket? You would have got to Mars already, right? Or you put them on the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a very good point. The other thing that is coming down the track, and I know Google have been kind of working hard on it, but also concerned by it, is quantum. Yeah. Because quantum then increases the speed of this thing like to Reed's law, it just goes exponential, exponential. Well, I mean, so you've had the move. So what happened is that you couldn't, you could, with the transformer architecture that paid attention to the important parts of things when learning principles, you could scale it with these A100s and things like that. But after a thousand or so, it tailed off just because of thermodynamics, actually. Um, like I said, we're literally melting GPUs now and got like 6,000 training our language models and things like that. It's like a half a billion dollar computer. 
that's actually been solved now. So that's linear scaling. You can actually emulate quantum qubits on H100s. Uh, and you can scale it pretty much out there, which has big implications if you think about it. Because people are willing to drop billions on these things now, where people say they only drop hundreds of millions. As quantum computing comes in, the key thing here is you have these models forming one part, and then quantum computing is great for optimization equations. Because one of the things you've seen is you've moved to deep learning as a key thing. Now you're introducing reinforcement learning. And this brings up forward things like AlphaGo and those AIs that beat humans at StarCraft and stuff like that. And then you bring quantum into that, you can basically optimize complex systems, which is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. How the hell are you staying on top of all of this? Honestly. I know you're at the epicenter of it, so I get that. I, it's difficult, man. Like every day, there's not a breakthrough. Seriously, the actual when you look at ML papers on Archiv, it's an actual exponential. It had a 26 month doubling. It's now like 13 or something like that. And again, it's parallelizing. Somebody, a lot of people ask me, where are, where's the financial markets people with this technology? You know, whether it's Renaissance. I don't know what models they had because they were obviously doing a lot of stuff early on. Where's Where's that coming? How unfair advantage do the model, the people who can build the models get for a while? Well, I think they get a big advantage because you can understand how to break down the markets. Uh, I think you move to AI-based market makers sooner rather than later. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, the general sophistication is very low because there aren't many people that understand these technologies. There's only a couple of hedge funds I've seen um, that none of them are doing properly. Like if I had this time and space, I'd launch my own hedge fund. I don't know the moment. <laughs> So uh, it's going to come. And again, I think there is an unfair advantage from being able to do this. Even more so if you have more degrees of freedom, shall we say. Like, what if you could read the stories and create the stories? We're going to see agents like that, that understand how things spread based on the variety metrics. Um, so I think markets have really moved highly narrative-based, if you look at it, like more than kind of ever. Like, what are fundamentals anymore even compared to narratives? I think that will just continue to be exacerbated by this technology. How is, and one of the things you might have seen me talk about this, and we briefed on it before, is how the hell is society going to deal with the deep fakes and the scale and speed with which we can create that going into the US election in two years? Well, next year, right? Um, next again, year, yeah. Basically got perfect deep fakes. They were coming on the way. Um, and it's pretty much real time. And the voice is like the audio DJ that just got released in um, Spotify. That was my sister-in-law's technology. Perfect voices, right? Dynamic with full emotional range. I think the only way is you have something like content authenticity. You have this kind of immutable trace from a curated source because then social network becomes even more important with the way that you curate these things because detection is very important. Like we were going to do a $200,000 deepfake detection price for open source, then we would like to be a race condition. So maybe it'll be some sort of blockchain. Maybe it'll be something like content authenticity that does a encode metaphile. But there needs to be standards sooner rather than later. But I think already people are like, I don't really believe that anymore because I just saw it on TikTok. I'm pretty sure Tom Cruise isn't doing all that stuff, you know? Uh, yeah, but it, it's fine in normal, normal life. But when it comes to points like pandemics, you know, things of, of societal importance... That becomes complicated. You know, I've, I've actually spoken, spent some time speaking to Google, Facebook, um, Amazon, 
LinkedIn, all of this about authentication of people as well. Because maybe yeah. you just authenticate people and then well, you this know. Is, this is why Meta is introducing this people authentication. This is why I said, if you look at this variety and spread, it's all about the curation aspect, right? And so there's a verification thing, like could be blockchain or it could be contentauthenticity.org. But then there is, what are these key choke points on information flow? And what do they look like? So you were working, and we've chatted about it privately, on cool stuff that are going to make people go, oh, my God, again. When is some of this cool stuff that you're seeing coming out? Or is there any cool stuff that's out already that you, you think people haven't noticed that how amazing this is? Well, we've just hit full controllability on image. So you can take the pose you are now, and then you can basically transform yourself into anything, move it to 3D. Um, there are new types of interfaces. So I don't how, know if I show... How long does something like that take? Talk me through that process. So I, I put in an image of me or a short video of me. I put it into this model, and then what? And then, you know, you can transform yourself into a transformer in, like, I don't know, a minute or something like that. And then once it's trained, it takes a second each time to transform yourself to anything else. But then you can export your 3D model, adjust it with a Blender plugin, and then you can just do that. Or you can take a whole movie and then transpose it with coherence probably in the next few months uh, into like an anime. You can make yourself Dragon Ball, whatever. Um, then you can view that on, uh, I don't think I showed you, like uh, one of the companies I'm on the advisory board of, Leia, they just released their glasses-free retina quality 3D tablet. So it's 3D without glasses. And it's retina quality. I'll send you a tab. Um, and basically, you convert 2D to 3D live as well. And you're like, what is this magic craziness? Especially advanced technology is magic. Uh, I, there's, there's too much magic out there. <laughs> the question is, you know, is it destructive or creative magic? It's a bit of both, unfortunately. It is. Uh, yeah, we just have to be honest with ourselves. We, we just don't know. But it's not going away. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We were always going to, somebody was always going to build this. Yeah, someone was always going to build this, and that's kind of what I saw, and that's why you know stability is like 16 months old. I accelerated this so so hard, and now I'm accelerating yet again because, like again, we've got to have options, right? And it can't just be like controlled by a few choke points. That okay, they get economic excess, but at the same time, like, are they doing the right thing? I don't know, but there should be options. Am I doing the right thing? I don't know, but at least other people can take the technology and kind of use it, hopefully for their own customization. And the ownership structure is different. Is there a good business on that? I think there's an amazing, ridiculous business from that as well. And the whole entertainment industry as well completely changes. Oh, here's a question that somebody asked me the other day, and it's a very valid question, is has the porn industry adopted it yet? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not you know what I mean? They've always been very fast with the adoption of technology because then <laughs> that changes a lot of the equation. Like, you can see these AI models now, so modeling. So yeah. you can get whatever kind of model you want to wear, the clothes that you want, you know, it's like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, like, um, I'd say my hope is probably that the exploitation right in that industry decreases if you have digital variants of it. Um, but I'm not sure how it's kind of being adopted at the moment. I do know that just like, you know, real life, still life pictures, some of the kind of models that included not safe work actually had better anatomy and things like that. Because it learned, again, it learned from still lifes um, and nudity and things, which is kind of crazy to think. Again, I think any information media flow-based business gets changed by this. And that is basically Western society, right? 
Like, I can't think of very many places where this isn't applicable to save money, make money, create new experiences, etc. I can't, again, I can't either. I, I can't get my head around it because it's literally every single thing we see, do, learn. I mean, just it's everything. It's everything. And there's this question, like, I'm reasonably convinced that in two, maximum five years, you will have ChatGPT on your smartphone without internet. What does that mean when you have a very capable analyst level person on your phone? Bing is no longer stupid. Siri is no longer stupid. And it learns about you. But it also means that the Internet of Things can have the same. Yes. And they can be embedded in your fridge. Yep. And you can go everywhere. I said you'll have it in your toaster, table diffusion in your toaster. Why? Because then you have fancy toast. Fancy toast. (laughs) Of course you will. I mean... You know, the Internet of Things is headed that way, but once you give it AI, it can do all sorts of stuff. Well, Web3 was missing AI, right? I always was very puzzled by that. You have identity, but you don't have AI. So, again, like, I think people will adopt this faster than, well, they are adopting it faster than any technology we have ever seen. And we've been in markets for decades, right? Never ever seen anything like this. Nobody has. Because there's an installed base, and it just seamlessly fits in because it takes structured and unstructured data back and forth. And then he said, like, eventually it will be on the edge, you know, and it will be available to everyone. And I think that is an incredibly uplifting, agentic thing. Or it's the panopticon to end all panopticons. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if my fridge is going to take over the world or not. But uh, once yeah. it's off the internet, it's you can't control it. Yeah, there's a great story by, uh, I think, Cory Doctorow called the unauthorized toast. The intelligent toast maker, you don't pay it, it stops making the toast. And then it, <laughs> You know, you got Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with, uh, like, um, what was it, Red Dwarf with angry toasters and things like that. Oh, my God, it's going to be a crazy future. I don't want toasters giving me attitude. <laughs> Get enough of that already. Yeah. And, Matt, listen, am- amazing again to catch up with you. Uh, thank you for giving us your time, and good luck with everything. Let's see where we get to. This is crazy. I mean, we only spoke about a month and a half ago. I don't know. Time compression technology. <laughs> like, oh my God. Okay. So where are we going to be in a year? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no yeah. idea. Anyway, no. my friend, great to see you as ever and good luck with everything. Cheers, buddy. We live in interesting times. We do indeed. There's almost too much to process in this video. I can't get my head around it. It's moving too fast. There is too much happening in too many spaces in every single aspect of everything we do as humans on Earth, from creating art to writing scripts for films to the medical practices, accounting, lawyers, media, literally everything. Any single absorption of knowledge has changed, but at a rate of which none of us can understand, A, how to even catch up, but how to even understand it. And when I ask Emad, who's at the bloody centre of it all, where it's all going in five years' time, he's like, fuck knows. It's moving so fast in so many unique ways by so many people that we really have no idea. But I think Emad confirmed my view that this is literally the biggest thing that has happened on an economic and societal level in history in the shortest period of time. And the ramifications of this will live with us forever.